Welcome, ED Frothers. Um, welcome back to the podcast. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Charlotte Durand, and we are talking about concussion. Now, just a bit of a warning. We do talk about some issues such as domestic violence and suicide. So just a trigger warning. Um, and I, you know, I guess if you're not in that headspace or um, this may not be the podcast for you in terms of listening to it today, um, we don't spend a lot of time on it, but I just wanted to let you know about that trigger warning before we start the episode. Um, I'm super stoked um, with this episode. Um, we all have our ideas about concussion and we may have seen it a lot in emergency departments across Australia or around the world. Um, and this is an awesome um, topic. Charlotte um, is amazing um, and really discusses some issues that I've never heard of before. And I really think um, this is a bit of a revolutionary episode because I think there's some stuff in the future with concussions that we may see in our emergency departments coming out. Um, I thought the discussion was awesome. We chatted about not only concussion, but about what motivates her as a clinician. Um, and I hope you can follow her on Instagram as well. Look at her stuff. She's very motivating. Um, and she has her own podcast as well. Her podcast is called Primary Cast Podcast. And for any of those ED doctors out there doing their primary exams, um, I really think it's an awesome podcast for you guys um, to prepare yourself for those primary exams. Um, those exams are intense, um, as I've heard from my um, colleagues. Um, and it's really awesome to talk to somebody who's done those exams um, it's not just thinking about herself, but it's thinking about her colleagues and how to make that process easier for them. Also, I wanted to say that I did hit 40,000 downloads, so I'm super pumped. Um, and I'm climbing up to that 50k. So share it with your friends and follow me on Instagram at edgm underscore podcast. You! This meeting is being recorded. Oh, gee, you got that too. Welcome to the ED Jam. Yeah. I got that song. Cool. Um, welcome to the ED Jam podcast. Um, tonight, um, I'm chatting to um, Charlotte, Dr. Charlotte. Um, Charlotte, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I've got you on the podcast because um, I want to find a little bit more about you and we're going to chat about concussion. Um, Charlotte, what do you do for work? Uh, so I am currently an emergency registrar. Um, I am technically for, I guess, ASIM people. I'm an early phase advanced trainee and I'm registered for the PEDS emergency training. I'm currently working in a six-month paediatric rotation and this will be my third year in Darwin. Sick. How do you find Darwin? It's great at the moment. It's just heading into dry season and so it's starting to cool down. So it's coming to that like sweet spot of like perfect weather every day. Um, it's lovely right now. Yeah. And the, the crew up here are really great and we do some really interesting work. So it's been a fantastic experience. Awesome. Had you ever wanted to go to Darwin to work or is it just something that caught your eye? Um, I kind of got to the point in my training where I was feeling really comfortable as like a mm. senior uh, resident or RMO and it came time for me to step up to be a registrar and I didn't particularly want to go to a big inner city hospital and someone suggested why don't you go to Darwin and I looked it up and it seemed okay and I phoned up to ask a little bit more about it and at the end of the interview the deputy director was like well you've got the job and I was like oops okay <laughs> <laughs> 
That's so good. Yeah, so it's a happy accident, really. <laughs> happy accident. It's cool. Um, I and for people out there, um, I actually came across um you on Instagram. Um, myself loving triathlons, you being like loving triathlons as well and exercise, and also um doing emergency. I was like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and I started to follow your follow you on Instagram and just sort of had seen you also um host a podcast as well. What's that about? Uh, so yeah, I do a like a very small project, which is a podcast for emergency trainees sitting the primary exams. Um, it's basically a unofficial, uh, free, open access study group where I go through past exam questions that have appeared on the Viva with my colleagues and I rope everybody in to come on for an episode and we basically just go back and forwards with past exam questions in the hope that it will help people who are preparing for that exam. Cool and they can access that podcast um, on all the streaming services? Yeah it's on all of the platforms Um, and it's the website is asimprimarypodcast.com. Awesome. Um, and you're a work-life balance enthusiast. Um, talk to me about triathlons. Why do you like them? Uh, so I use that term with, you know, a grain of salt because <laughs> I'm an enthusiast. I am certainly not uh, experienced or often very successful at it. <laughs> um, I love triathlon because mm. it allows me to get out and do a whole bunch of different things. The crowd of triathlons is really great. Everyone's out there to have a good time. Uh, You don't particularly have to be good at any one sport. You can be quite average at three sports and still do all right. (laughs) It's the kind of sport that brings together people from all walks of life. Um, And there's something about doing three different sports in one day that makes you feel like you've really achieved something. So the finish line feeling is extra special. It is. Hey, I, I, I was so nervous doing a try. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to be so hopeless. Everyone's going to like think I'm an idiot. And after like I got on the start line of the swim and there was this girl like wearing like, like in a pink, like wedding and she was chatting to me. And then she's like, Oh, this is my fifth one. And then the whole family were like doing it together. And I'm like, what? And I instantly felt at home and I'm like, this is like amazing. Like the, the environment, everyone cheers you on and claps and yells. And I was like, Oh wow. I just didn't think I had preconceived ideas about triathlon. It's so different when you do it. Yeah, it's um, it's much less intimidating once you are in there doing it. It seems pretty scary from the sidelines, but I'm starting to get a reputation for recruiting all of my colleagues and friends to do at least one. So yes. if you if you meet me at work, then chances are you'll be roped into some sort of triathlon event. Love it. That's so good. I, I love triathlons. They're fun. Um, do you like any one particular um, like running, swimming, riding, or you like it all? Um, my favorite sport out of the three is definitely running, uh, because it's the one that I sort of grew up doing first and then I'm better at, um, but Mm. any given day, any one of the legs can be much better or worse than the others. So it's always (laughs) a bit of a mixed bag. Sweet. Um, and I encourage everyone to follow your Instagram. I'll put it, um, in the notes, show notes, um, at the end of the podcast as well. Cause I think it's really motivating. I love motivating stuff, especially if you're on a shift and then I've seen a post you know, you might be talking about stretching or you're talking about running after a shift. And I think that's really motivating for health clinicians just to get outside um, and do something. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Now, talk to me. I brought you on the podcast because you're a legend, number one. I brought you on the podcast, number two, because you've got a cool topic we're going to talk about. Um, And number three, because you're fun. 
Um, so we're going to crack into this um, episode. You've spoken about this, um, like at a grand rounds topic before. Um, yeah. And you were quite interested in it. But I want to know a little bit about um, why we were choosing this topic initially. So what I wanted to speak about was the um, the sort of long-term effects and the sort of hidden things that we don't often realise and we can sometimes miss about concussion, um, whether that be in paediatrics or in adults. And there's a couple of reasons why I'm drawn to it. Uh, I think it's something that we firstly see a lot of in the emergency department and we manage quite a lot of people with concussion and discharge them home. Mm. Uh, some, some get admitted, but most of them end up going home and we do it frequently, but perhaps not as well as we could do sometimes. Uh, we're good at addressing the acute complications and people with really serious head injuries and dealing with things that are happening on that day but I don't think we do um, we prepare people for the possible long-term effects of that and I also participate in different sports here and there and being in Australia there's lots of contact sports so I have a lot of friends and people I know who have had quite bad concussions and so I've seen firsthand how much it can affect people which is often magnified by a lack of understanding of what's actually going on. And then finally, there's not many instances or conditions in emergency medicine where we can truly do some preventative health care. Yeah. And I think concussion is one of those ones where we can really get in early and prevent bad things happening rather than be the ones who are dealing with the outcome of those bad things. I love it. That's cool. It's so true. Hey, we often, we, we, we're good in emergency at picking the bad, bad stuff, you know, like this is really bad, but it's the other stuff we, you know, like the representations or the long-term effects that we do miss. So I think that's a really good point. Um, why is concussion serious? So the thing that made me sort of first get interested in this and to want to improve my practice a bit better was just yeah. basically out of uh, curiosity and, uh, I came across a story of an NFL player in the US uh, by the name of Owen Thomas, mm -hmm. who back in around 2009, 2010, was captain of the University of Pennsylvania football team. He was very well liked. He um, was doing really well at um, college. And then partway through the semester, he called his parents and was saying, I can't concentrate. I'm failing things at school. He wasn't feeling quite right. And then in the next sort of couple of weeks, seemingly out of the blue, he um, took his own life in his apartment at college. Wow. And it was very unexpected, very out of the blue. His parents and friends were obviously extremely distraught. Um, but in the wake of that event, they had a phone call basically the next day from, uh, from a doctor, Chris Nowinski, who was working at the Boston Concussion Legacy Foundation. Um, and he explained that they studied brains of people who had had repeated lifetime head injuries. And they were looking for a condition called chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. And I can explain a bit more about what that is and the story and all of the sort of things that have been discovered since then in 2010. But that kind of was the first time I'd ever heard of something like that. And it mm. sort of spurred me on in to try and learn a bit more about it as we do when we're sort of curious about these things that seem to be new. 
This is a silly question, but was it is that similar to the movie Concussion? You know, when they talked about CTE, I'm not sure if that's it was a yeah, movie. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen the movie, but it might be a similar type thing. Yeah, yeah, with NFL players um, are getting hit. Obviously, the way they tackle is with their head more than their arms and body. And mm-hmm. they looked at um, players that had actually had hit, and then they sort of were looking, and they became um, obviously their behaviour had changed down the track, and a whole bunch of these same in the same team players in, in similar positions were having yeah. um yeah mental health or was put down as mental health issues but they found that it could have been the CTA which was interesting when they see yeah, there was some really bad atrophy and some weird things so yeah that's absolutely it yeah yeah um so for people like me that don't know a lot about this sort of stuff what is CTA so uh CTA uh, stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy and it's basically a diagnosis that is a sort of post-mortem diagnosis because it has to be made under the microscope. Um, and what they find is there's an accumulation of tau proteins in a specific arrangement. And you'll know that tau proteins are the same kind of pathological proteins that are present in Alzheimer's, but the, the pattern of accumulation is markedly different. There's, you know, we alluded to before, there is a clinical syndrome that's hasn't yet fully been defined. It was originally known as punch drunk syndrome in boxes back in the early days. Um, And it's gained more public prominence in sort of the mid to late 2000s when a number of NFL players were diagnosed after suicides and Owen being one of the more famous ones. And when they autopsied his brain, they found that he had early stage CTE. Wow. Yeah, it is thought like that the damage is like you said, in response to repeated head traumas whether that's concussions or being knocked out or just the minor sort of head-based tackling. Um, in soccer, um, mm. doing lots of headers has been associated with CTE. So it doesn't yeah. even have to be a serious head injury. Um, the later stages present sort of looking like Alzheimer's disease, but in those early stages, people often have symptoms of depression, mood swings, explosiveness, loss of attention, difficulty concentrating, headaches, short-term memory loss, it's really hard to define. Mm. Um, And, yeah, at that point when Owen's family got the phone call from from Chris Nowinski, they'd done quite a lot of work on Mm. NFL players and autopsies, and I think that's probably what that documentary you saw is about. And from... 111 former NFL players, they found that 110 of them had CTE. Wow. Um, and that included 48 out of 53 college-level players and also three out of 14 high school players. So it's something that Whoa. is not a – it doesn't take sort of a lifetime to accumulate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, around that time there was also stuff happening in Australia. So there's been quite a lot of work in Australia looking at looking at that as well um, through the Australian Sports Brain Bank. Okay. And is that looking at like, you know, like obviously making sure kids are not getting back on the field with head injuries or is that looking at more preventative um, strategies? It's quite interesting actually because the Australian Sports Brain Bank, which has been set up in 2018 Mm. um, under the neuropathologist uh, associate professor Michael Buckland, who initially set up a partnership with the Boston lab and they were initially sending um, donated brains to Boston for analysis, but then they set it up in Australia 
Um, and so, so far, the ASBB has had 21 post-mortem brain donations. And in patients who had a history of repetitive head injury, they the most commonly identified pathology was CTE. Wow. Um, and really interestingly, so they found 12 people with pathology and six out of those 12 had actually died by suicide, which confirmed or suggested um, that it might be a factor, which is in line with meta-analysis data. Uh, there was a study published in 2019, um, which included more than 700,000 patients and showed a twofold higher risk of subsequent suicide among people who had been diagnosed in the past with concussion or mild traumatic brain injury. Wow. Mm, so it's it's That's... a it's a big it's a big deal and it's not something that can really be ignored and I know you asked before about the guidelines in Australia and mm. the thing to note there is that three of the 12 who had CTE were less than 35 which means that they grew up in the era of our current sports guidelines and wow. helmets in sport and calls for, you know, better, you know, education for coaches and kids coming off if they get head knocks. So despite our current guidelines, people are still having CTE. Um, so that's, that's prompted these sort of, medical bodies to call for a review into the way that we manage concussion in sport in Australia. And, wow. you know, as a, as a side note to all of that, and um, something that I feel is really important is that the majority of this research, as you might imagine, we're talking about football, we're talking about NFL, yeah. it's mostly men. So only two of the 21 donated brains in Australia were female, which is reflective of patents seen in the US. And I think this will end up being an area of medicine where we look back and see that not only did we miss studying mm. in the initial phases, all those women with repetitive sporting head injuries, um, but you know, what about those that we see in ED quite frequently and also those that never present with head injuries secondary to domestic and family violence and young children too. So there's a whole, while the progress and this information is all very useful and important, I think still, you know, despite it being 2022, we're still missing quite a whole cohort of, of possible patients. I was caught off guard, I think, a little bit on this because I thought of concussion. You know, someone who really loves sports, thinking that it was mainly in relation to sort of sporting incidences or, you know, extreme sports. But I never really thought of it, um, you know, being related to domestic violence and family violence. Um, and I guess at this point I was sort of thinking, wow, imagine how many, you know, women would not report um, domestic violence. Um, or men, but mainly uh, women and children who are the main ones who are affected by um, family violence. Um, it, it sort of made me realise um, how sad it would be as well. Um, and I know that all of us who work in ED, 
or even you know paramedics or even police um social workers would would know that you know we do see a lot of violence towards towards women and we do see a lot of domestic violence and but mainly for the, for the person who's going through this sort of stuff um and also we, we were talking about the underreporting of it because there is a lot of a stigma around it shame around it as well 100 percent, especially with um like underreporting of domestic violence and also you know um the shame that goes along with that um, people have to carry in terms of just coming forward with domestic violence, let alone, you know, getting scans and all these other things. It's, um, I completely agree with you too. And I think that female um, um, contact sport is also gone, getting, you know, a lot more, a lot more girls are playing AFL, a lot more girls are playing rugby league, um, in my opinion now, than when I was at school, um, which is awesome too, from the sporting perspective, but also, as you said before, we need to be aware of, there's concussive factors as well. A, a quick one on that: the postmortem brain is that basically them deciding? Um, is it the family deciding that the, the brain will be donated for research, or is it? How does that work? So, so a lot of in the US, yeah. it's more well known. So a lot of people are a lot of people who feel like they may have CTE yep. are writing in their will that they would like their brain to be donated. Okay. Um, and in Australia, I'm not sure if we're quite there yet, yep. um, but I think often particularly, and maybe this is reflected in the in the numbers, it's quite a small sample size, 21, but I think a lot of the time when um, when there's a suicide in, in a community or in a family, people go looking for answers and the CTE perhaps can provide an avenue for that and so I wonder if people are more likely to donate if that's if that's their circumstance but as it becomes more widely um, more widely known I think perhaps there'll be more people directly donating but mm. I wonder if perhaps people are like when Owen's family got a phone call I wonder if if there's high profile cases whether whether um people are calling families. I don't know exactly how they're getting yeah. their information. It's interesting, hey, like um, I'm just, I'm just sort of like stunned a little, a little bit too, especially thinking that, um, you know, even with all the suicides due to, you know, repetitive, you know, head injuries um, and that their, you know, the way their brain functioned obviously affected them, you know, killing themselves. And that's really sad that, um, you know, families may not have known that, you know what I mean? Would have been such a different, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, I think when discussing sensitive topics and things like suicide, it's, you know, it's often the end symptom of a number of years of struggle yeah. and trauma. And it's often, you know, it's quite challenging for a lot of people and whether CTE has contributed or not, um, mm. you know, there's always still that stigma around suicide and you know, I think it's it's never something that, you know, I think people, it's never something that people want to do and it's only mm. something that happens as a last resort. And so I think, you mm. know, for grieving families, it's hard to process regardless. And so, so, yeah, to have them be able to get some answers is a natural, is a natural thing that people would like to do.
Correct. Yeah, it is true. Hey, people do want to find answers, especially for their loved ones. Um, I guess yeah, um, you raised some points here. One thing um, I was we were going to ask is what happens in concussion. So for everyone out there listening, um, what actually happens when someone gets concussed? So it's an interesting question because defining concussion versus a mild traumatic brain injury, which it's sometimes called, is really difficult because there's no consensus amongst scientists or medical professionals or sporting professionals. So um, aside from the fact that it involves an impact to the head Mm. and it may or may not result in an altered neurological state that is outwardly um, accessible. But as we're discovering much of what underlies these altered states um, can be explained by something called the neurometabolic cascade of concussion. Um, which was described in a great paper by Christopher Gieser and David Hovder in neurosurgery in 2014. And they sort of brought together a review which showed that research coming from both animal studies and also reproduced in actually in ICU patients that were undergoing cerebral dialysis showed that there was quite a neurometabolic alteration in people who had both mild and severe traumatic brain injuries. So things that it showed were elevated levels of glutamate, some significant abnormalities in potassium and calcium flux, and activation of different ionic gated channels, which created a sort of spreading depression-like state of parts of the brain that were affected that usually lasts around seven to 10 days. And there's been PET scans done on patients who have both severe and mild TBI, which show early hyperglycolysis followed by a profound metabolic depression. And this profound depression is seen equally in mild TBI as it is in severe TBI. So the metabolic change to the brain can be significant without there being any sort of obvious outward uh, signs and symptoms. Um, The other sort of thing they found was that in athletes who had a second injury before that metabolic state had completely recovered then the abnormalities that were there took much longer to return to baseline and that's where we get the sort of concept of a second impact syndrome yeah there's quite a lot of change that happens even that like, we don't see because mm, we you know like i guess in a, in like in ed and even in icu you you so often are looking for you know something big you know what i mean you're looking for the big bleed or you're looking for the you know a base of skull fracture you're looking for something that's really big and tangible um but to know that after something that you know even small that they can be microscopic or even or not even you know even things that can change in terms of chemical markers that can really impact on how the brain functions yeah absolutely it's i think it's something that i certainly underestimated at you know when i started my practice in emergency and I think as a sort of as a specialty sometimes we underestimate the effects that this can have um, certainly on the longer term recovery for people in the weeks following uh, an injury that may be you know not severe enough to warrant an admission. Mm. When uh, you written uh, we wrote down here so like brain troponin that was some of the things you talked about some of the markers. Um, yeah so sorry go on. No 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 you go on go on I was just interested with that word it's such a word that we hear in ed like troponin we think of the heart but also imagine thinking of an elevated enzyme in the brain that makes us go oh hang on maybe i'll keep you or maybe i'll advise you not to do you know what i mean like i don't know 
like you know mm, it's a I guess it's an interesting area um there's been a lot of research into markers for head injury and there's things like the neuron specific NLAs which is released by the brain when there's when it undergoes stress and there's been some studies published which show sort of correlation with symptoms at two weeks, but a lot of it is non-significant by six weeks. So there's no major, no major breakthroughs yet, but I know there's a lot of people working on it to try mm. and get something that will allow us to quantify, um, give a number to the severity. I think I'm cautious as to yeah. how <laughs> yeah. that Will be and I don't want to in, you know, recommend or <laughs> yeah. using something like that but if you know it may be something that is rolled out in years to come in the future yeah how you know and it's funny hey troponin is just one of those things I just I mean I know it's a side note but it's something that we just use so regularly in emergency departments but imagine having that for like you know just having a feature like that for concussive factors and it being enough to put you in short stay, you know what I mean? Or put you in a, I don't know, to have other things to keep you in or other things to sort of put you on a trajectory for getting a, you know, another look or another scan or another blood test or another something to not just send you home with a little fact sheet and say, see you later. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Um, the third part's what we can, what can we do um, about it? So I guess, you know, as a clinician, how has this sort of changed your practice? in terms of like, you know, expectations in the emergency department, talk, run me through some of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I like to, I thought about this a lot um, yeah. because that's, I guess the crux of it, isn't it? Is what can you do when you're on that Saturday afternoon fast track shift and <laughs> everyone's coming in with their head injuries and yeah. there's you no know, waiting room full of them. Um, the way I like to divide it up is into expectations education and expert follow-up okay so but we know we know that ed is really good at deciding if something's seriously unwell or if mm -hmm. something's not seriously on someone's not seriously unwell so i'm not talking about kids who have obvious skull fractures or they come in with a decreased gcs or any of those sort of red flag signs that mean they need urgent imaging or admission for a trauma um, trauma admission or anything like that. I'm talking about the kids who are seemingly okay and have a few mild concussive symptoms, but are likely going to be discharged home. Mm. And the first part expectations is setting expectations for parents in ED. So there was a great study that was done uh, where they took 900 parents of 10 to 17 year olds and describe to them symptoms of a mild concussion. 42% mm. of those parents said they would seek immediate care in the emergency department. And of those people, 65% said that they would definitely expect imaging. And so wow. the patients in your waiting room who have a mild head knocks, it's reasonable to think that 65% of those expect they're gonna have a head scan. Wow. So setting up from that expectation from the beginning, knowing that people are really concerned about these symptoms mm. is a good place to start. Um, and we know that 
communication breakdown can be one of the sort of biggest pitfalls of emergency. So knowing that they're the expectations and trying to slowly turn the ship around in terms of those expectations can take you that extra couple of minutes, um, but it can save you from scanning a kid's head unnecessarily. So I think that's really important mm. where you start. How do you go about that? Like, do you sort of say, um, oh, a CT head's got, you know, 200 normal chest x-rays or depending on the parent's knowledge, do you sort of say, well, you know, we don't routinely, you know, scan kids' heads. I would just love to know your approach to a parent. that yeah. is. I try not to focus on the scan itself and the yeah. badness of the scan because then if something happens and actually the child does need a scan, <laughs> then but, um, yeah. you know, things change. Yeah, yeah. Um, Usually I say I've got two columns yep. and one is like a green column of things that are reassuring and good signs. Mm. And I've got a red column, which is like bad stuff. And if I say, oh, these are your symptoms, you've got this, this, and this in the green column, which is mm. really good. And then you've got not this, not this, not this, not this from the red column, which is really good. I tend to explain to them about concussion and that sort of comes in the education and expectations for symptoms and then you know knowledge is power so bringing them along and educating them on what you know can often mean that they understand and they realize that actually there's no red flag symptoms mm. um, and you know things change over time and maybe the next time their child will need a head ct but um you know, I think starting with the symptoms and saying what's reassuring is a good place to begin. Yeah, I like that on education. I think we, like, I love telling patients about what's happening and I've, and I've always found it served me well in terms of my relationship with my patients. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I love it. I think that they they really do feel like, um, you know, even in resource today we had a little kitty and just explaining, you know, what an LP was to the parents and, um, and they, were, they were paramedics, but it was great because it was like, oh, sorry, we haven't been on that side of things, you know, and it's really good because it's it's such a shame to assume somebody knows something to give you without explaining it to them. And especially a parent, they can be trying to take so much stuff in. Um, it's always so good just to reassure them and explain things. I think that's really awesome. I love your approach yeah. to that, Charlotte. Oh, thank you. And, like, the, the expectation setting then goes into your what to expect when they go home mm. because part of that education is, what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks and what to expect and what to be concerned about because it's likely that the kid's going to go home and keep having symptoms for at least one to two weeks okay. um, in, in bad concussion. And so I sort of explain what the range of symptoms are that they could um, expect yeah. and also the recovery. So we know that in research done in high school athletes, they take longer to recover, so seven days they still have memory dysfunction and uh, difficulty with um, with working memory. And so I will say to people, you know, you, you have to not go to school for a couple of days and then you can't sit any exams this week. And we know that uh, kids will report they feel better before actually they show that they're any better on tests. So yeah. kids feel better and want to go back to doing everything and then they'll have another crash again and, and feel like they've got their headache back and now they're photosensitive again. And, you know, the good news for parents is that a single mild concussion usually has no lasting uh, sequelae, but 
if you explain it to them, like, you know, if you sprained your wrist, we'd put it in a, um, you know, in a some sort of bandage or we'd put it in a splint or if you fractured something, we put it in a cast for six weeks, but we can't do that for your brain. So mm -hmm. we need to rest it as best we can. And so that's yeah. part of like, setting expectations for discharge as well. That's really good. Hey, like we, you're right. Hey, we don't, I just, you know, made me think we, we don't have anything for the brain to, you know, like how often, you know, like you said, we'll rest or if we've got diarrhea and vomiting, we'll stay home on the lounge, you know, cause they're so outwardly um, visible things, but yet the brain and like, you know, having headaches and memory loss, they're things that are really important and kids sometimes just want to get back on the bike or back to school and see their friends. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, that can be a real point of contention between parents and kids. And so that's where the empowering with education really helps because I will often talk to parents about um, the risk of CTE, the risk of a secondary head injury in the first two weeks. I'll even, you know, this may be a bit extreme, but if this kid is, if this is the 10th head knock for the season, I will strongly suggest reconsidering that sport. Yeah. Um, I will you know, talk to them about graded return to sport where, you know, you have to just do drills for a week when you want to go back and then you need to be assessed again for symptoms by another clinician. And there's heaps of information on the Concussion in Sport Australia website, which is okay. a fantastic resource. It is sort of based on guidelines that we've had for years, but it gives a really good um, stepwise approach to going back to sport. And then the final part of that is the expert follow-up. So uh, seeing your GP in a week to check on your symptoms. We've got a fantastic uh, occupational therapist run a concussion clinic where they phone people and do tests over the phone and then uh, do assessments that way. Um, and then there's always the option of um, following up usually with the, your usual GP, but sometimes mm. there's some sports physicians that can follow up for kids who are your sort of teens doing very serious sports. Mm. Um, do you ever use like an awoptus or like a post, you know? Oh, like PTAs? Yeah. Yeah, so for kids who get admitted, yes, they'll get PTAs on the ward. Yep. Um, sometimes if it's in daytime hours, we'll get the ED occupational therapist to come by and do a post-concussion assessment. Yeah. Um, I will often go through a list of symptoms and uh, I often go based on just my clinical assessment of the patient um, mm. because it doesn't, I guess it doesn't necessarily preclude them sometimes from going home, but it can mean that they need closer follow-up. So if, if there's, if there's the opportunity to have an OT, like it's a reason, it's a reasonable hour, um, then definitely I will use that. But I won't personally do no. formal scoring systems. Yep. Yeah, because like we'll use like, you know, in kids over seven, we'll use like an awoptus, like the Westmead post-amnesia testing, you know, like the bird cup keys thing. Um, yeah. Just, and then obviously their GCS to see if they can. But I think that's limited to being over seven years of age. Um, and I think under 70 or under 60, yeah, one of those two. So, and I, I mean, there's other features that stop you from getting out of that, you know, obviously if your GCS yeah. is too low. Or... And I mean, look, it's probably something that I could be doing. Um, no, no, so... I was interested. Yeah. 
I'm it would give a really it would give a better sort of objective assessment um, mm -hmm. of the um, of the I guess brain functioning and the working memory and things like that. So yeah, yeah. it might be worth might be worth doing. When you um do well, who are the kids that you do get suspicious about, or like the ones that um you know do you ever have those times when you're like oh I, it's just interesting over people listening that you sit on kids and go oh. You know, do you ever think about what, yeah, I just not interested. So I guess there's two groups of kids and there's the one we spoke about before where it's your, you're deciding does this child need to have their head scanned? Are we worried about an intracranial bleed, a skull yeah. fracture, things yeah. like that. And they're your children. I used, I used the um, PREDICT guideline for yeah. head injury, um, which is that really lovely rainbow-coloured flow chart. Um, which if you just Google predict head injury guideline, it comes up wherever you are. Yeah, it and, got updated recently, didn't it? Or last year, the year before. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. And that's got your, um, you know, obviously anyone who's GCS 14 or having concerning signs of altered level of consciousness, any abnormal neurological exam, any sort of very severe sounding injury or any post-traumatic seizure, those kids mm. um, get a consultant to review we're looking at really seriously. Um, anyone who looks like they've got significant bruising to suggest a skull fracture, severe mm. vomit, severe headache, photophobic, all of those red flags that we recognise really well in ED that we pick up quite well. Um, sometimes there's kids who, uh, it's, I mean, it's so hard, isn't it? It's the kids that just look really bad. <laughs> yeah. It's the kids. Often you'll see they've come in with a head injury, but they're sort of like, still kind of playing footy in the waiting room or, mm. you know, they're still up and about. Um, but it's the kids who either have ongoing vomiting or they're lying there and they've got the pillow over their face because they don't want to look at the bright lights or yeah. the parents, usually the parents, you know, I know we said they have different um, expectations, but if the parents are really concerned that the child is behaving abnormally, mm. um, that makes me stop and and think again um if it's late at night and they've had a what sounds like a pretty big head knock um that will influence me as well i won't usually discharge patients you know in darwin sometimes they live sort of an hour from the hospital so if it's night time and it sounds like they had a pretty big head knock and yeah. they you know they live miles out of town i'll probably just keep those ones so i guess it's the answer is it depends <laughs> no, it's good it's patient by patient. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think what you raise is good too. Like, you know, that beware of the well-looking kid that, you know, can you look at them one minute and they're, you know, like it's just interesting, hey, like some kids can really look good sometimes and then other times you see them in LA, like, man, he still looks a bit, you know, off. And yeah. um, beware of the times when you're trying to convince yourself that you shouldn't go with your gut or go with what, you know, you sort of go, oh, I should send them home and then you have that second thought it's good to you know run it by someone else too sometimes yeah and like it's so funny because as I'm working in sort of inpatient pediatrics now yeah. and the ED peds job I find has that uniquely stressful component of making a decision to discharge a child home after only a short period of observation. Like when you're discharging kids from the ward, they've been in for a couple of days, you know exactly what's going on. You know they're getting better, you've seen it. 
um, everyone's ready to go. Yeah. But in ED, you have to make that decision a bit quicker with less information and less observation time. So, you know, I always, if I'm, and obviously I'm a registrar, not a consultant, so I don't have that, those extra years of experience and that seniority. So if I have any doubts about a kid, I'll either refer them for further assessment or mm. get my boss to weigh in on it or keep them overnight just in case. So I think there's no, you know, there's no big harm in that uh, yeah. in the long run. I'm just interested to know, you know, you talked about the parents, you know, a good example is the parents that love their sport. Um, I'm not saying they're living their dreams through their kids, but they're very passionate about their sport. Um, and you come in to talk about concussive factors. Um, have you ever had it go a different way where parents have been quite upset and, you know, I just was very interested with that sort of topic. Um, I think often it's something that by the time they're in the emergency department, yep. they've had the big scare. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. And it's often a time where it's a good opportunity to have some real talk. Yeah. Um, and if if I'm not going to give them the information about the seriousness of head injury, like who is, yeah. um, and often I'll say, you know, yes, you got knocked out playing whatever contact sport it was. Um, if this keeps happening, you can have serious long-term issues. You know, it's really important that we try and, you know, minimise the effects. So sometimes it's like, a really scrawny, tiny 10-year-old kid who's playing against 11-year-olds that are twice their size because they've yeah. already hit their growth spurt. And, you know, you say, oh, look, can we sit out the rest of the season? Can mm. we get the kid a helmet? Can we, you know, make some concessions? And just that education, I think if, you're, if your health staff is not telling you about the health risks of your sport, then no one else is. Um, and so that's usually my approach is just not try and influence anyone in any way, but just give them the information that they, they may not have access to and then they can make their own decision about that. I think that's good, hey. Like it can, you could so easily just move to the next patient in emergency and so easily just forget about giving that education and have that straight talk. Um, but I guess as well, like you said, where um, we do have a duty of care and especially for children, they're, they're part of our vulnerable patients, in my personal opinion, um, mm. and that we need to look after. And that is having that chat with a parent about that. Um, yeah, it's crazy, hey, something that we need to address. Yeah, and it doesn't take very long as well. It, it's, you know, like you said before, often we will, you print the sheet and you give it to the parents and you say, here's some info on concussion, uh, and then they go on their merry way. But with five minutes, you can do some like really excellent preventative healthcare and really empower the family to, I guess, take, you know, it sounds silly, but take the health of their growing brain seriously. Mm. I feel like I'm, you know, it's funny how I look back at the sport and I go, gee, I did so many silly things without a helmet. Now I'm like, it's funny, being, being older, I so often like I ride motorbikes still, but I always have a helmet. My kids all wear helmets. I even snowboard with a helmet now. Um, you know, years of, when I did four years of trauma nursing, I was like, that's it. Helmets are just like a must and ladders are a no-no. Um, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I sound like a real fun police, but 
you know, I still get out on my mountain bike and have a big stack, but I've got my full face helmet, so it's fine. Yeah, it's so true. Hey, like you, I've got all the gear and I won't ride without it because I just know yeah. that I want to be that. It's it's a, it's a risk assessment, and I just like people to be fully aware of the risk before they make that assessment. Yeah, we still want to have fun. Still like going fast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we still like going fast. We still like having fun, but um, there's risks associated with that as well. Yeah. Um, any, any advice for clinicians that want to know more about head injuries? And then I want to find out a little bit quickly about you. But um, any, where would you, I guess the cool thing is to predict stuff we can put in the show notes for people that are having a look at that. But on CTE, yeah. um, maybe attach some studies that you were um, describing. The um, Boston Concussion Legacy Foundation has a fantastic website and they've got, you know, stories and stuff like that, as well as the science and all of the research they've published. The Australian Sports Brain Bank has a great website and they've got online lectures about the pathophysiology of the tau protein accumulation and heaps of interesting, interesting stuff on that. Um, and there's a couple of uh, there's a couple of other resources and studies floating around and maybe I can send you a couple. Um, That'd be awesome. For the show notes. Um, I wanted to just quickly, before we like close, find a little bit about you. Um, and some questions I have, I want to know what keeps you motivated. You know, we're currently in a pretty crazy time in emergency where we're really burnt out and, you know, I, I don't know you guys, I'm pretty sure it's similar in all hospitals around the world at the moment. How do you stay motivated, Charlotte? What keeps you going? Um, I think you're right in saying that everyone is a bit burnt out and, and everyone's, yeah, just, just in general, a little bit tired. Um, the kind of things that really motivate me and keep me going at work is my interaction with both patients and colleagues. I think it sounds, I don't know if that sounds a bit trite or a little bit like, like a not real answer, but my favorite thing about work is the banter and the yeah. laughs and the fun times and I really do love connecting with people and I'm a massive extrovert. So being in a busy ED with everyone coming and going and I've been here nearly three years now. So I know quite a lot of people. So running into people, interns on different rotations and, you know, popping down to ICU to, you know, borrow some equipment <laughs> or like, <laughs> you know, those social interactions is you know, with both colleagues and with patients um, and having a bit of a laugh is the kind of stuff that makes me mm. think, yeah, no, I really, really do like my job. What is the most important lesson you've learned over your career so far, Charlotte? I know you said you're only a registrar, but I think that registrars are our biggest workhorses. I think you guys are absolutely amazing in the patients you see and the decisions you make. Not to not consultants, I just really um, think it's amazing. I think you guys work really hard. <laughs> Um, but what, yeah, what has been the most important lesson so far? Oh, um, I've learned a lot of lessons. Yeah. Um, and often you learn some of those lessons the hard way. Um, what will, what is my lesson? Let me think. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's really hard to just pick one. Yeah. Um, you can have a few, what, like, even if it's from, even if it's a mistake or something that you've been like, I won't. For me, it's like I like we said before. I'll always plug in the BiPAP machine to oxygen. <laughs> like, yeah. I think I think 
I think my biggest lesson that I've learned in transitioning from being an intern and a resident up to a registrar is that asking for help when you are stuck. I always felt like mm. as an intern or resident that I always asked for help way more than everybody else. And I felt that that made me seem like I didn't know what I was doing. Like, you know, I know how to do an ABG, but I just would like someone to watch me and make sure I'm doing it right. So I'd ask someone, or I think that this is the diagnosis, but I'm not 100% sure. So I double check and ask, or I see a rash, I don't quite know what it is, so I'm going to ask. And I always thought that made me annoying, but also incompetent. Yeah. And it wasn't until I became a registrar and I was in charge of sort of supervising interns and RMOs who were seeing patients that I felt that the best intern and the best resident were the ones who would go and do their own thing and as soon as they got stuck would mm. come and find me because I know that I can just let them go do their thing and mm. when they don't they reach something that they're not 100% sure of they'll come and find me so mm. I don't have to worry about them but the ones who never come and ask me for my opinion, I have to like be like, oh, I better just check and make sure everything's okay and I've got to actively think about them. So I always thought that asking for help was maybe made me not as good as my colleagues, but I think asking for help is actually a strength, not a weakness. And 100%. it actually makes your colleagues trust you more because they know you will ask. Mm. I, I think too, Charlotte, it shows a level of vulnerability. And I think sometimes we don't like that. We, um, you know, we look at other people and we, it, it's hard. I think um, I completely agree with you um, about asking for help. And it, it takes a level of like, you, I know, like you kind of go, oh, do, should I be asking for this? And, um, but I do think it's a really important lesson. And I think, you know, sometimes we do need to, we need to do that regularly. Um, which brings me to another question I had for you. Um, I watched a story you put up once about professional mentors. Um, and I believe that we should have someone to look up to, um, to be a mentor. Um, who's been your, you know, who's someone that you look up to? Uh, it doesn't have to be in medicine. It could just be in general. Is there anything, or do you, do you agree with having a mentor in the you know, environment? So I have many mentors yeah. and I think having a range of mentors is the best way to do it. I've certainly got people who I go to for advice about certain things. Um, I've got people who I, you know, call when I have a question about the trajectory of my career. There's people who I call when I've had a really troubling case. There's people who I call when I need specific advice about, you know, something. And mm -hmm. I think having a range of mentors is really good. I was just, you know, on the phone this morning to one of my mentors um, and was getting some great advice. And, you know, if you have more mentors, then you never feel like you're as big of a burden. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's just nice. It's just nice to have, you mm. know, to have relationships where you can ask for, ask for good clinical advice. Yeah. In an ideal world, Charlotte, if you could, you know, we can't control every feature. Um, yeah, what what do you, um, where would you sort of see yourself? Yeah, what am I doing with my life? Not <laughs> enough that, did I? <laughs> no, I often ask that of myself. Oh, um, not just me? Maybe I, I feel like oh, that. no, that's okay. 
It's like a daily question. Um, <laughs> so when I think about that, I think about it in like multiple domains. Yep. So I would like to be enjoying my clinical work. Yeah. I would like to be doing something, whether it be through my clinical work, like a portfolio or something or something yep. on the side where I'm still doing my like, I guess, FOMED kind of stuff, like yep. my podcasting and like some graphics stuff and and all of that. I'd like to still be active enough to enjoy being outdoors. And yeah, cool. I love that. I'd like to be in a location that allows me to get outside when I'm not at work. Love so it. So they're the sort of goals. I don't, aside from that, I will sit some exams at some point probably, but that's less of a priority. No, but that's really awesome. I think, Shine, remember, like I'm just like I'm a nurse and I think sometimes I've seen so many doctors go through their exams and I think it must be so hard because it just becomes your primary, hence the pun, focus. Um, but I love how you, what I found about you was the balance you have. I love balanced people. I know that we can be unbalanced at times, um, but I do love the, you know, what's the point in having working your whole life if you're not enjoying being outside? Like I'm a big advocate for being outdoors and, and you know, enjoying, you know, the ocean, enjoying the sun, um, enjoying time with your friends, enjoying, you know, that sort of stuff because that's important. Um, and it also grounds you as a human as well. I think sometimes in ED, like we sometimes think that it just life revolves just around working in emergency, but there is, a there is you know, life outside the doors of uh, emergency, which is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not an expert or even moderately accomplished at any kind of work-life balance just yet, but I'm enthusiastic at trying. Yeah, I like that too, hey, like you might not. Um, my last question for you, um, what is the best and worst advice you've received? Uh, I know it's a bit of a random question, but I was like, I'd love to know. Yeah. Uh, if you some... On your journey or in med or just, yeah. Yeah, I got, in terms of, I had to think about this, in terms of worst advice, I don't know that I've, maybe I just ignored all the bad advice. But <laughs> I've ever received. Like, <laughs> That's good like very bad I've certainly tried to not follow any bad advice but I think the thing when people are giving advice I tend to steer away from uh when people just tell you to do exactly what they did yeah as a way of sort of justifying their own decisions um I find that I tend to get sort of put off by that when they're like oh you should do this thing which is exactly the same that I did because that's a great idea um so I tend to steer away from that in terms of best advice mm. I got some fantastic advice this morning from yeah. one of my mentors um because I was you know having that that existential question of what am I doing with my life yeah and I said that I don't know if I'll ever feel like I have enough experience to step up as a consultant like there's just so mm. much to do there's so many procedures there's so much to learn there's so much experience that I want to get and I want to be really like ready Mm. to then step up as a consultant um and she just kind of laughed <laughs> and was like told me about a few scenarios that were just beyond belief and she was like you cannot prepare for every clinical scenario like you just you could spend your whole life trying and you just cannot mm. she said there's always going to be situations that arise that we could never have anticipated mm. and so what we do instead is we prepare to be flexible, to be adaptable, 
to be able to coordinate a functioning team, mm. to be calm in a crisis, trained to be able to sort of flex that leadership muscle that you see people do when they're a fantastic team leader mm. in order to be able to do new things in a new way or in a different environment or with an unexpected clinical scenario. And that is what you train for, not the specific procedure, not the specific thing. It's that it's that sort of leadership muscle that you learn to build and flex and become adaptable. So I thought that was some fantastic advice. That's powerful advice too. I got goosebumps up my arms. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's very wise. Well, I think so too, because oh, I, I've seen that so often, you know, like not being, you know, I'm you're never sort of never going to be ready. Like you said, like it's this almost weight on your shoulders to be this certain frame of a consultant to fit this mold. Um, when, like you said, you're going to get scenarios in which, I mean, not everyone knows the answer to. And I think it's so hard. I think doctors are required to, you know, like, you know, in baseball have a strike rate of 300. I hit every single ball that comes through. Um, and I think knowing that we can't, you can't possibly do that is also scary, but also refreshing in the sense that we're human, you know? Um, yeah. Know, that's, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I guess um, some themes I guess we raised was some, you know, obviously we raised a lot of stuff on um, CT. We raised some stuff on concussion. We raised on the seriousness of it. We raised what happens in concussion. We gave some cool advice to parents uh, and cool advice to clinicians who are, um, you know, thinking about sending kids home. Um, I'm stoked that I got to chat with you um, and also um, stoked to continue to watch your journey. If people want to look at your journey, how can they find you? Um, yeah. Um, I'm on like various social media platforms, yep. not TikTok. Um, I'll leave <laughs> that one up to you. <laughs> um, my uh, Instagram is... Uh, my name, Shah Durand, C-H-A-R-D-U-R-A-N-D. Yep. And that's mostly just like photos of me riding my bike. Um, so it's not really that medical. <laughs> um, yep. the, I'm on uh, Twitter as well, um, uh, Shah underscore Durand. And my, you can sort of, there's links on there to like different websites and things where I put my blog and my uh, podcast and all of that jazz. Um, awesome. Um, all over the place. It's good. I think, um, yeah, it's awesome. And I appreciate your time. I think even if you're getting motivated for, um, yeah, I don't know, you got some podcasting stuff on your Instagram, but I always recommend it's a good place to to have a look at as well. And also even your um, your book club stuff as well. Which is oh, yeah. For that. <laughs> yeah, just saying interesting. I don't know, just saying that interesting for people because sometimes we get so focused on um, emergency, you realise that you need to have life outside of that as well. The EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today, the Darawal people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Hey, Frothers, the EDGM has got some awesome episodes coming out soon. Um, I'm going to be chatting to a cardiothoracic doctor. I'm also chatting to a midwife, um, some more ED emergency guys I'm going to be chatting to as well, um, a retrievalist. I'm also going to be chatting with... Um, someone about a patient's story, which is going to be epic, have you in tears, but also leave you um, feeling amazing. You!
I'm also going to be chatting to um, an Indigenous doctor in relation to cultural safety, which is going to be epic, an emergency guy. Um, and also paramedics out there, I've got some awesome episodes coming your way. One of them will have you in stitches. Um, uh, it's going to be a great episode and that'll be coming soon too. Woo.